So my teacher, Richard Rohr, at a recent gathering, um, and in which it was becoming quite evident that he was getting, is getting uh, very old. He's, I think, got a bit of dementia. And he said, I like to just sit behind my little house and I gaze. I just gaze. And I'm sitting here looking at all of you thinking, I could sit here for the next 45 minutes and just gaze. That would be great, you know? And it's so evident to me that in these retreats that the Sangha is indeed a refuge and it is indeed a jewel. Um, It's amazing. It continues to be amazing to talk to people in the same group from Texas and China. It's it's been a real gift of this time. So welcome. I'm happy to be here with you this afternoon. I'm expecting maybe a thunderstorm, which is why the earbuds, hoping that if it happens, it will keep the sound relatively clear. So, you know, I think a lot of these teachings really what the Buddha was about. He wanted all beings to be happy. And not, you know, not in some trite sense, but to really be able to be, in our case, human beings in a way that, um, if not a complete ending of suffering, at least a whole lot less. And so many of the teachings sort of point in that direction. Think about this. Think about that. So today, I hope this hangs together. I feel a little like maybe we're just going to wander around together for a while, but we'll see how it plays out. Um, So I've been thinking lately about coloring, coloring, coloring outside the lines. So most of us, at least I did when I was little, you had coloring books, right? And if you were only two, you could scribble on the page any which way that you wanted to. But as time went on, you were, most of us were encouraged to color inside the lines. That was, you know, I'm sure it develops hand-eye coordination and all of that. But still, you know, stay inside lines and the more careful we were and the more we picked the right colors of course we got a certain amount of praise or maybe the gold star unless you had either enlightened parents or enlightened teachers which not too many of us had and of course even now there are these very elaborate coloring books you can get mandalas and fancy designs and I was with my five-year-old great-niece a couple of weeks ago, and she had the biggest set of coloring pencils I've ever seen in my life, and these very detailed drawings that she was having fun coloring it. She's a pretty talented little kid, but still. So, of course, not many of us, I mean, we all tried to follow the rules, and maybe a few of you didn't. You know, you were quite happy to color outside the lines. So a couple of weeks ago when I was down in Big Sur at the Hermitage down there, I had a really interesting conversation with a man who is a Trappist monk. And um, Nukamaldali is not Trappist. It's another order of Benedictine. 
And he doesn't, he's feeling like he doesn't quite fit. And he's in his late 50s and he doesn't know quite what he wants to do. And he said, I've always been one to color outside the lines. And I went, oh, that's an interesting thing to say and to think about. You know, how, and he's trying to figure out how can he still remain a monk? He wants to do that, but color outside the lines. So, of course, as always with that kind of comment, I started thinking about myself a bit. And I've always been, if I think about it, I've always been kind of an in-between person. Not quite fully anything. And um, here and there, (laughs) I've committed to one form of practice or another. But... You know, these days I would, I probably, if somebody said to me, well, are you a Buddhist? I would probably say, well, not fully. And if they said, well, what are you? I certainly wouldn't say, well, I'm a Catholic because I'm not. And, but I have some involvement in that world and I find it hugely helpful. And so it feels like I'm, I'm kind of on the edge. I'm on the edge of several worlds, actually. And uh, Richard Rohr actually talks about that. He talks about the value of being on the edge. He says, but if you are both inside and outside, uh, you are a possible threat, a possible reformer, and a lasting invitation to a much larger world. So inviting us to think, what happens if we don't stay right within the particular boundaries that either we have set for ourselves or other people? have and that it's an incredibly creative place to be and it comes it comes without the constraints of having to behave you know you don't have to follow the rules if you're on the edge so that's sort of the background thinking about coloring outside the lines currently one of my practice groups um, is studying the early Buddhist women. We, I called the group the First Women Ancestors. And um, we're reading some studies and some of the early texts and talk about coloring outside of the lines. Those women, whew, you know, they really, from the and very much inside of a difficult culture for women, wanted to change and spoke up. So at that time, women were not supposed to be independent. And one writer said, by a girl, by a young woman, or even by an aged one, nothing must be done independently. In childhood, a female must be subject to her father, in youth to her husband, when her lord is dead, her sons. A woman must never be independent. Well, you know, made my hair curl. I mean, really. Mm. And, of course, blessedly, there were women who were independent in thought and action. And before the time of the Buddha, there were a few who would break loose and they would become hermits or wandering ascetics which was a role that many men took on, but as they say, not very many women. 
but it was very difficult. They were extraordinarily vulnerable uh, and they weren't actually treated very well. They were mostly outcast. So the Buddha comes along and, you know, he began to gather people around him almost immediately. And after a while, it was a pretty significant community of monks who had gathered around. And so the women got kind of interested, you know, maybe they would like to do that. Some of the ones who wanted things to be different and wanted to practice in the same way that the men did. So if you remember the story, the Buddha's birth mother died really shortly after he was born and within a week or two. And he was raised primarily by his aunt, uh, Mahapajapati, who was also, probably was also um, another of the king's wives, as well as being his mother's sister. And so she watched him. You know, I thought about her a lot in recent weeks, like watching, here's this little kid, you know, And he gets born and setting aside all the mythology about how he walked in the first hours after he was born and, you know, all of that stuff. But still, he probably showed some signs of being kind of unusual, don't you think? You know, and he had like the experience that Bob talked about. You know, he had some interesting experiences as he was growing up and there were these prophecies. And so she was his auntie and his mom and she watched him. And then, you know, watched him as he left home and probably kept track of him in those years when he was being an ascetic and learning all the meditation techniques. And then, of course, he had the experience, the enlightenment experience, and began to teach. So she wanted to learn. And she thought maybe she wanted to become a nun. There wasn't much of a role for her anymore. And as as a little bit of an aside, it it looks as though actually a great number of the harem women um, followed along ultimately with her. So Mahapajapati goes to the Buddha and she says, what do you think? You know, I'd like to become a nun. And he said, can't be done. And she asked again. And he said, nope. And she asked again, which is, you know, if you ask three times, that carries a little extra weight. But still, no, flat out, not gonna do it. But you know, I think she was a little wily. And so she went home. And she shaved her head. And she put on the yellow robes of a monk. And with a number of other women, she set out to walk to the town where the Buddha was going to be teaching shortly, 50 miles away. So it was a pretty hefty walk, barefoot. And, you know, dirt, not easy. And so she got there and got to the hall where he was teaching. Of course, she couldn't go in because she was a woman. And she waited and it said her feet were swollen and her limbs were covered with dust and she was sad and unhappy with tears on her face and sobbing. So there she is. 
your soul wants to practice. Isn't it? it I'm just, this is, I'm flashing on this right now as I'm talking. I mean, this is so amazing. You know, if we had said to you, you're going to have to stand outside the hall, you can't come in. It's impressive that somebody would want to practice that much. You know, that she, she walked all that way. She had such passion for practice. So Ananda comes along. Now, one of the interesting things about Ananda, there are at least some theories that say maybe he was also one of the sons of the Buddha, besides Rahula. And he's kind of sympathetic, you know. Here's the Buddha's auntie and mother. And so she, uh, he asks, and she tells him what she wants. And he says, well, I'll go and I'll ask. And he asks three times, and the Buddha still says no. No, it can't be done. But Ananda is also a bit wily and asks another way. He says, are women capable of enlightenment? Here's this woman who has taken such good care of you. She seems so wise. Is she capable, are women capable of waking up? And the Buddha had to say, yes, this is possible. So Ananda says, you know, he says, yes. And Ananda reminds him of how kind she has been. And so the Buddha finally gives him and says, yes, they can be nuns. They have some extra rules, more lines to color inside of, if you will, um, that they have to follow, and they can be nuns. So communities arose with those women who were definitely coloring outside the lines and really defining their own reality. And again, at a time where women were property, they were expected, they were breeders, really. They were were not really expected to be independent at all, just like the thing I just read. And that's been true of many varieties of women monastics monastics throughout the centuries, um, that it it was a way for women to have a life of some study and some practice and not to get caught in the, the childbearing kind of thing. And it's said, actually, this is a little factoid that I came across recently. So Teresa of Avila, one of the great Christian mystics, didn't particularly want to be a nun, but she'd watched her mother die in childbirth with her ninth child. And she went, no, I'm not doing that. And the only way not to do it was to go off and be a nun. So she did. And then she did a good job of it, apparently. So Theravadan Buddhism, the variety of Buddhism that Vipassana comes from, the Buddhism of Thailand and Burma and Laos and that part of the world, has been for centuries largely male-defined. And it's interesting because once again now, women are beginning to rock the boat a little bit. There are way more women teachers in the lay Vipassana world, which is new and different. And there are a whole group of women, because the bhikkhuni, the nuns lineage kind of died out. And so you couldn't get full ordination. You could be a, a what was called a 10 precept nun. And you were kind of like the maid, you know, you cooked and cleaned and took care of the monks. It was not very much different from being a wife, actually. And so a group of women said, no, we want, to, we want the full thing. We want to be bhikkhunis. We want the full ordination. And it's a long and complicated story. I'm not going to go into the whole thing. 
Um, and they pushed and found ways and it's happening. It's very exciting. And many of you know Ananda Bodhi, who's up near Placerville. Um, she's one of the early um, Western women who have been ordained in the Theravadan lineage. I think it's also important to say when we think about the kinds of constraints and the lines that we have to color inside, we don't have a whole lot of images of women in our texts. There are not as many, nearly as many stories about women as men. And, you know, that's half of the human experience is being a woman. We have very little, mm, what would I say? We have very few practices that come from the more feminine side of the psyche. And I don't think that's just a, that's, that's, we all have that. Um, we don't have much music in the Theravadan world. And we have precious little poetry, except that people like Bob and JD and I bring it in because it feels like it's a good thing to add. And in fact, in my early years of teaching, I really hunted for women poets because I wanted to bring in women's voices in a way that um, we didn't have. We don't have a lot of devotional practice. We don't have that kind of thing, which is more a heart practice than a head practice. Hmm. So some years ago, I was on a retreat at Spirit Rock and the monks were teaching and there were some nuns who came along. Um, they were not fully ordained nuns. And um, there were the nuns who at that time lived at Amravati. And um, the word got around that there was going to be a bhakti underground gathering. So bhakti is devotional kinds of practice. And um, those of you who know Spirit Rock know that underneath the meditation hall, there's a lower walking hall. And at that time, it wasn't even a walking hall. It was just kind of a leftover space, actually. And so we gathered down there in this dark space with the nuns, and we sang kirtan, and we sang chants, and we did all of that kind of wonderful, warm heart practice that there hasn't been so very much of. Um, and, you know, we need, we really need both dimensions um, in our practice. So a little another thing to think about when we're thinking about coloring outside the lines, and this comes back to some of what Bob was saying. So when that's looking at the formation of self. So selfing causes problems. That's an easy way to think about this issue about self, you know, and we talked last night, Bob talked so beautifully about his grandson, you know, Silas, I think is his name. And, um, and how, you know, when you arrive as an infant, when you arrived as an infant, um, you don't have very much of the conventional sense of self. I'm just, Russell just told me a joke. I think I will tell it to you because it's so good, because it sort of counters what I just said. 
was about a mother who was singing You Are My Sunshine to her little kid to try to get him to go to sleep. And he said he didn't like it, doesn't like that song. Can you imagine not liking You Are My Sunshine? And she said, but, but I used to sing it to you when you were in my tummy. And he looked her dead in the eye and he said, I didn't like it then either. So there you have it. Things do happen when you're in utero. But you don't have much sense of self. I doubt that kids sort out the songs that are sung to them. So you get born. You're this little being. And gradually you begin to organize yourself around the experiences you have. And you know, you're wet and then you're dry and you're comfortable and you're uncomfortable and you're full and you're empty and you're held and loved or you've been left alone. And gradually, you know, create a sense of there's, there's somebody here that that's all happening to. Your universe begins to include whoever it is that's taking care of you. Some likely, but not always, your parents. And as you get older, move around more, begin to connect with other people, um, you collect more experiences and you learn to exist in time and space. And you begin to have some sense of your own boundaries, where you begin and where you leave off. All of that is great. You know, we need to have that happen. And you know, I'm, I'm not, I know there are people who think that infants arrive totally enlightened, but I'm not one of them. I think there's some work to be done first. So the early years of the human experience are all about becoming somebody. And in the world of time and space, you need a sense of self. You need to know where you live. You need to know your zip code and your phone number. It's helpful if you know your name, you know. You need boundaries, and you need to know that you have some say over who comes across your boundaries. All of that is part of growing up. But what happens is that this sense of I and me and mine begins to get quite central, quite well-defined, almost like it has a a hardening of the boundaries, if you will. You know, this is me, this is mine. Brings about a lot of attachment, a lot of aversion, a lot of struggle to stay afloat and to achieve and all of that. And the real catch is that the self that you're acquiring is often defined initially by your family, maybe by your culture. And there's a particular set of lines for the self that is developing, lines that you're supposed to stay inside of. It might have to do with sexual orientation. It might even have to do with gender. It might be a very particular set of social behaviors or spiritual behaviors, religious behaviors. It might have to do with academic achievement or whether you're going to be an athlete or not. The list is very, very long. And we do our best, most of us as kids, to try to measure up to what our parents want. 
we create that self. But the Buddha, of course, said, well, maybe the picture is bigger than that. Maybe that set of lines that we use to define ourselves. What if, what if there really aren't any lines? What if? So he began to teach about what is called anatta. It's one of the three insights, anicca, impermanence, dukkha, the nature of suffering, and anatta, the nature of self or no self. And I don't know how many people I've talked to over my years of practice and teaching who go, oh, no self. You know, I mean, how do you do that? How do you, how do you not have a self? You know, it seems scary and, and like somehow nobody will be there and uh, maybe you won't even really exist if you achieve anatta. And, you know, what is happening? I, I have to say, confess that in, at one point in my practice, I took great comfort in um, observing some of the people I thought were quite significantly waked up, like the Dalai Lama. And he certainly seemed to have a pretty clear sense of who he was and his zip code and his name and what he liked and didn't like. So that was, that was quite comforting. Somehow Ananta maybe didn't mean nothing. But what you might consider is that's not it at all. It's not about nothing. It's maybe that whatever it is that you are is way bigger than you thought. Way bigger. You are part, maybe a teeny infinitesimal part, but nonetheless a part of a much bigger picture with no lines. We can't possibly even define it. You are a manifestation of a huge process a huge process that, as I say, we can't really begin to understand. And of course, the amazing thing is that our modern science is showing us 2,600 years after the Buddha, just how true the idea of the big picture is in our physical universe. Vast universes out there, millions of galaxies like ours, a universe, you know, that's possibly really quite young and still expanding. Although maybe Bob's son is going to teach us. Otherwise, I don't know. He's an astrophysicist. He's got some interesting new ideas. And they tell us, like, when the particles that are, when they're separated, they still (coughs) behave as though they're still connected to each other. How does that happen? Or that pretty invariably chaos resolves after a while into some order. So this is a cosmos that's kind of beyond imagining. And we are these tiny little specks in it, which maybe seems scary, but maybe it's worth considering that we are held in this process, that no peace is ever completely lost. So if you think, for example, about the ocean, since many of you live not far from the ocean, you know, waves they come and they go, but the water doesn't leave the ocean, right? It's still there. It's it's not that the wave the wave has an individual existence for a while and then it's part of the whole. So for a few years now, 
I've been reading materials from the mystic thinkers of other traditions besides the Buddhist. And to a person, they all say, you know, there's, we have to change um, the old understandings that we've had about um, the universe and the religious understandings that are kind of three-tiered, you know, the good stuff is up there and we're in the middle and the bad stuff is down there. And don't think that Buddhism doesn't have that. Gets a little more, there's 12 layers in the Buddhist cosmology and we happen to be smack dab in the middle again. Um, But it's still a multi-layered cosmology. So, we really are invited to consider this mysteriousness in our inner practice and to see that it really almost demands for us to have a view that allows space, it allows mystery, it allows not knowing, it allows that there might be more to any given picture than we think. And I find this very useful in a, actually in a really practical way. You know, I find it useful, for example, around people that I have problems with. And I'm, I actually was thinking of one particular situation here, so it's nothing that any of you would know about, but people who are very troubled, you know, with quite a bit of addictive behavior going on. And You know, and maybe, you know, the people that you're concerned about have barely made it through childhood and they've had terrible abuse. And what if somebody's threatening to leave? And it's so easy, for me anyway, maybe not for you, to go, oh, I know what's going on there, and to predict what's going to happen, and to think that if I only could get right in there, I could fix it, right? And it's um, important to understand that 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 view, that's what what is the normal view, is only what I experience in a tiny, tiny moment of time. It's hemmed in by my notion of me and them. And I actually don't have the whole picture. And can I relax and let there be more space? So Wes Nisker, who was, was, is one of our dear Spirit Rock teachers, he likes to say, can I carry the big picture in my pocket? Which is sort of an interesting thing. Can you carry the big picture in your pocket? And I did, actually, quite recently, I went out and got an image of that wonderful, uh, the Hubble Deep Space image that shows so many galaxies in very deep space um, that hangs behind me over there, over my altar. I need to know that I'm part of that. And I'm part of it, which means I'm not alone. And I need to know that things will change. And then when that happens, when I get to be part of that really vast, vast picture, mysterious picture, I can actually, in an interesting way, relax. It's reminding me, many years ago I was in a 
period of considerable crisis in my marriage. And Gil said, you know, you should remember that you're only one of 8 billion people. These huge problems that you think are just so earth-shaking. He didn't quite say who cares, <laughs> but in a way he did. And it was helpful. It was really helpful. Oh, I'm just, I'm just this little infinitesimal speck. I can relax. It's not so important. I have some hope these days that there are those of us, and I would probably include all of you, who are trying to color outside the lines that have governed our world, the lines of racism and gender and cultures and ethnicity and political affiliation and education achievement. I don't know, know, the list is so long. There's so many. And who are trying to still be here, still be members, and yet speak from the edge. It's very apparent that there's a whole group of people who are trying really hard to stay inside the lines, who are resisting change, resisting new definitions. Um, But I take hope in this more fluid group that's beginning to happen. These people, I think of these people, I think of you as people who are doing our best to wake up. But it's really important to remember that the awakened state is not just another set of lines. It's not a definition. It's not a particular state. It's not a one-time experience. It demands that in every moment we be willing to let go of whatever lines we are using to color in a particular situation. It's something that we do. It's something that we do, not something that we are. And it keeps on going. One of my teachers, Hamid Ali, I know he's been a teacher for some of you, used to say there's always something new to find. And he already had found out so much, you know. But then he finds out something else and gets excited about it and opens it up. So we... You know, we keep opening and we keep opening and we see what happens. You know, I've mentioned several times that about four years ago, I, in a time of some difficulty, turned back towards some of my Christian roots. I find it very difficult to talk about, you know. I'm, I worry, you know, or you, you guys might judge me. You might think, what is she doing here? We don't want her on our Buddhist retreat. Um, that's okay. You can live with that, I guess. And, you know, for me, it was very much like those wonderful lines from T.S. Eliot, where he says, we shall not cease from exploration And the end of our exploring will be to arrive where we started and to know the place for the first time. 
So wherever I am in that world, I see it through the lens of my 35 years of Buddhist practice, which is rapidly approaching 40 years of Buddhist practice, which is a very, very helpful lens. So it's interesting to do these things. You might each consider, you know, what do you do that is a little bit outside the lines, it's a little bit on the edge because we have to do this awake business. We have to. The world is in considerable crisis these days. And if we sleep through it, it's not going to get any better. So we do awakeness. We do enlightenment. We do this in each moment and in each situation. And the best way to do it, I think, is not to know, to get it, that we don't understand who it is that we are or what it is that we are, because we there aren't really any lines, you know? And so you don't know who you are, you don't know who the other is, you don't know what should be done, you can't rely on the old definitions, you can't rely on your old expectations. And then, out of that knowing, something new arises. So to go back to those early nuns who walked outside of their definitions, there's a lovely story of one whose name was Patachara, and she um, lost her husband, and then in trying to get back to her family, she lost both of her children, they both died, and she went crazy. And she went wandering around in the villages. Ultimately, her clothes fell off and she was naked. And she would rant and rave and people would throw stuff at her and drive her out of the village. And one day, she came to a place where the Buddha was, of course. And he didn't have that set of lines for her. He didn't have any definitions about who she should be. And what he did, I I just love this part of the story, what he did as she was wandering around raving in circles was he put himself in her path, in the way where where she would bump into him. And he said, Sister, recover your presence of mind. And that was enough for a start. And so... She did, and ultimately joined the nuns' community. And and actually, there's a, a lovely poem of hers, which I'm not going to read to you tonight, but um, in which she talks about how her meditation practice is so hard and how come she doesn't get anywhere. And I, oh, this should be the theme song for all people on meditation retreats. But again, someone who stepped outside of what was normally expected and met someone who had no need to slot her into another definition. So I'm going to read to you. It's a quote from Thomas Merton. And it's a really, it's one of my favorites and it's, um, 
it's really an image of what this vast view might be. So he's talking about what he calls and the play of God or the dancing. The dancing is good. We, he says, we do not have to go very far to catch echoes of that game and of that dancing. When we are alone on a starlit night, when by chance we see the migrating birds in autumn descending on a grove of junipers to rest and eat, when we see children in a moment when they are really children, when we know love in our own hearts, or when, like the Japanese poet Basho, we hear an old frog land in a quiet pond with a solitary splash. At such times, the awakening, the turning inside out of all values, the newness, the emptiness, and the purity of vision that make themselves evident provide a glimpse of the cosmic dance. For the world and time are the dance of the Lord in emptiness. The silence of the spheres is the music of a wedding feast. The more we persist in misunderstanding the phenomena of life, the more we analyze them out into strange finalities and complex purposes of our own, the more we involve ourselves in sadness, absurdity, and despair. But it does not matter much because no despair of ours can alter the reality of things or stain the joy of the cosmic dance, which is always there. Indeed, we are in the midst of it, and it is right in the midst of us, for it beats in our very blood, whether we want it to or not. Yet the fact remains that we are invited to forget ourselves on purpose, cast our awful solemnity to the winds, and join in the general dance. So may we all step outside of the lines and dance together. So let's just sit and breathe for a moment. So thank you very much for your presence and your listening. Enjoy your period of walking and metta will happen at the half hour. Thank you.